It's the Fitness Lab Pittsburgh podcast, a new episode every week. A podcast about movement, part of making your life complete. Fitness Lab Pittsburgh, aka FitLab PGH, brings you interviews with people in the Pittsburgh area who understand movement is part of what makes life complete. Looking for a new movement idea or just want to hear interesting stories about people who make movement a priority? This is the podcast for you. Whether you consider the gym, dojo, or fitness studio your third place, or just want to learn more about movement activity and fitness to enhance your life, give FitLab PGH a listen. We interview locals in the Pittsburgh area who make Pittsburgh a great place to move. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website for other subscription options. Subscribing is free and gives you notifications when we release new episodes. Each podcast episode will be long enough to pique your interest and short enough to hold your attention. Have an idea for an episode? Know somebody we should interview? Or just want to connect with us? Drop us an email, fitlabpgh at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at fitlabpgh. Already a fan of FitLabPGH? Check out our sister podcast, Moving to Live. Moving to Live is a podcast for movement professionals and amateur aficionados. Moving to Live offers weekly interviews with movement professionals featuring topics from career development to coaching tips and education resources to advice for parents of student athletes. We look forward to hearing from you and we hope you enjoy our next interview starting now. Welcome back to another interview with Moving to Live. We have part two of our interview today with Sam Woods. Sam is a physical therapist. She's board certified in orthopedics. She has a cash-based physical therapy program in Colorado Springs with a partner, and she also does some endurance coaching. So I think she's got some really interesting things to share with us. To start it out with, I think the most interesting thing that I read when I was doing the research is she has finished the Leadville 100 trail run, which is a 100-mile trail run in Leadville, Colorado, in sandals. And I know from having seen some of the terrain, that's rocky, that's rutted. Um, Why did you start it on sandals, Sam? (laughs) Great question. Um, Yeah, folks sometimes will see me running in sandals in their first They'll, they'll, they'll exclaim, are you in sandals or are you in flip-flops? Um, and I think people think it's harder. And to some degree, it can be more difficult than that. You really need to pay attention to what you're doing when your toes aren't necessarily protected. But for me, um, a few years ago, I really, I started hitting like injury after injury and I needed to rehab my gait. Uh, I was doing, as a physical therapist, I was doing everything else. I was strengthening the mobility, but I couldn't seem to shake my injuries. And I basically, I, I real, I came to realize that I, I needed to learn to run a little differently. And so sandals helped me do that. And that's mostly what I continue to run in. And what kind of a runner were you that made you realize, Hey, I need to change my gait. Yeah, I, I started running my freshman year in high school and, uh, I think I went to Foot Locker at the mall or something. And the guy sold me a pair of New Balance and it was a stability shoe. And I, so I ran in stability shoes all through high school and college and then my early marathon career. 
and I and I wasn't injured for a very long time, maybe eleven years of competition. But once I got my first injury, it it, it seemed like it just kept reoccurring. Uh, and I, you know, looking back at pictures and videos, um, it's clear that I'm overstriding. It's clear that uh, I'm I'm definitely landing harder uh, and louder uh, than I need to be. And so my best guess, you know, we're always trying to make an educated guess. My best guess um, was that it was just too much, too much impact force. Uh, and I, I really think that critical line was when I started doing ultras. So for some reason, I could overstride in a 5K, a 10K, 10-mile 10 marathon even. But once I hit ultra marathons, I think that's when my body said, okay, that's too much load in one day. I can't let you overstride anymore. So that, that's my best guess. And how did you revamp your running stride? How did you, what did you switch to from overstriding? And I'm assuming if you over, overstrode or over, I'm sure that's the wrong verbiage, but if you took too long a step, you had increased heel striking forces. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting. I don't, I don't necessarily recommend people do exactly what I did. Um, but I had battled plantar fasciitis probably a little over a year. This was like in 2014, like basically the entire year I had those issues. And then I ended up getting a concussion that was bad enough that I was not at work for a couple of weeks. And um, this was when I was still active duty. So I, I got out of my boots for a couple of weeks and I started to notice that all of a sudden after a year, my plantar fasciitis was starting to get better on its own. And I'm just around the house walking barefoot type thing. So like the light bulb went off and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I've tried. I, I, it, my plantar fasciitis was so bad that at one time I was at orthotics and hocus and it still hurt. And <laughs> so I, I went the complete other route, uh, because that's kind of, that was the mindset at the time. So I started feeling better and, um, I actually spent the first three months running completely barefoot. So I would go find like clean sidewalk or a really smooth road and I would jog very slowly. And what I will say is, Part of overstriding, people think about taking big steps or long strides, but they don't necessarily understand that when your foot hits the ground, it's really about what direction is your foot moving. Is it still moving forward, reaching out, and then you land? Or is it starting to come back and it's actually landing and coming back at the same pace that you're moving? In other, in other words, it's like moving over the ground. Um, and it's that breaking effect that I associate with overstriding. So barefoot, you just can't do that because you feel it. There's a sheer force. Your skin will tell you, hey, dummy, you're overstriding. And uh, after 11 years or so of overstriding, you know, that pattern is very ingrained in my brain. Um, so it took about three months of jogging around barefoot for a new pattern to develop where I could actually put on sandals and run without pain. If I had put sandals on right away, I don't necessarily think I would have stopped overstriding because I couldn't feel the sandals still protected. So for me, it was more about going barefoot than even being in minimal shoes, so to speak. And I would think the going barefoot, you really have to be careful about how you place your feet, which is going to bring in a lot of intrinsic muscle activation so that you don't slam your foot down. And even if there's a small pebble or a gap in the pavement, the controlling of the foot forces is going to make you very aware of how your foot lands. Absolutely. And yeah, there's no more mindless running. Um, 
and I'm I'm excited. It's 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 a long process. A lot of folks don't necessarily they might hear stories of people that transition very quickly. Uh, for me, it was I was successful. I, I feel I maybe nine months into my transition, I did the Pikes Peak Marathon in sandals. So I was very happy with that, but. The you, you have to go slow. Your soft tissues, your tendons, your ligaments, even your bone density, everything takes time to remodel. So you just you have to go like go as pick the slowest you think you need to go, and then like go even slower than that. I know, as somebody who's a longtime endurance athlete, although not at the level of yours, I've gone the whole gambit of orthotic stability shoes. And when they came out with the Vibram Five Fingers, I tried those, and I found even with slow adaptation, that wasn't enough. But I was fortunate enough to find Ultra Shoes, which aren't quite as severely uh, different as sandals, but still are significantly different from other running shoes. And maybe not as logically as you, but gradually transitioned to a change. Uh, one of the advantages that I have and you have is as medical professionals or coaches or exercise physiologists, anything that we play with or any pair of shoes that we buy, we can kind of say, well, you know, this is research for professional knowledge. Whereas somebody who is a, a runner or a triathlete or somebody who wants to start a running program, they want to know what do I need to get? They don't, they're not going to want to go out and buy five or six pairs of sandals or shoes. So somebody comes to you as a physical therapist, they've maybe picked a race six or eight months down the line that they want to run. They're a neophyte runner. How do you address with them that maybe some of the current footwear that exists isn't the best for reducing injuries? Yeah. Tough so question. Yeah, I know. The rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, in reducing injuries, um, you know, if they've, if they're struggling with injury, that's when I think about changing something. Cause I, I've looked at some of these, you know, you look at, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, but he used to hold the world record for the marathon, Halle Gabrielassi, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, sorry to all the runners that know how to say that. But he, uh, there's video of him. Uh, you could probably find it on YouTube. And he is running and his foot is just kind of, we would call it overpronating. And it's just, it's just way, he's losing alignment, so to speak. Um, and most people who have a biomechanical mind would say, you know, that looks awful. And yet, he seems okay. He's obviously able to do enough training to be at that level. Um, we see women running knock-kneed, uh, but they're some of the fastest marathoners in the world. So I think a lot of it has to do with even if you're, even if what you're doing is not ideal biomechanically, is your body adapted to that stress? And I think folks get confused sometimes. They see lots of different types of runners succeeding, and I think it has more to do with what their body is adapted to. So if, if they're trying to change, um, either they're just interested in changing or they have an injury, you know, I like, if they come to me as a therapist, I like to screen them. I like to look for joint restrictions or just simple things. Can you balance on one leg? Um, what's going on with your, your squat, you know, what your hip and ankle mobility, that, that sort of thing. Just because I may not change everything, but if they're not successful, you kind of want to know where else do I need to look? Um, video they're running for We may or may not change their shoe. It, if they want to change their shoe, I, I try to get them changing as, as slowly as possible. So I think like an ultra or any company that has a similar product, 
is very good because if anything, our foot needs to be able to be a little bit closer to what I would say is natural, which means your toes have plenty of room and you're on a flat surface. And the, um, the interesting thing is when I started using ultra shoes, I'm about a size and a half bigger in shoes after three or four years, just because my feet having the room to spread out. Yes. Yeah. And that is, I, I, what's hard for me as a therapist is I get folks of all ages, but especially maybe 40, even 40 and above come in and they have so many foot problems and you look and you just see these deformities that are caused by shoes. Um, either shoes that are too small or women choosing to wear high heels or just or just a lot of shoes are really not designed for the foot. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, folks are getting injections and surgeries. And, and I really try to steer runners, especially since they're on their feet a lot, towards just something more natural. Uh, if they're having an issue that I can associate with impact forces, I might encourage them to do a little bit of really slow jogging. I really like barefoot. Uh, and the reason is like you can have a Vibram five finger on, but you can still overstride in a Vibram five finger because you have that little layer that's protecting your skin from sheer forces. But once you take that off, it's all out in the open and you can, your feet become your coach. Uh, so there's the idea of what's the correct biomechanic. But then people still have to find that. They have to wire that in into their brain. How is it that I'm going to protect myself when I'm running? How is it I'm not going to every every uh, step be a disaster? One of the things that always amazes people is the fact that swimmers swim so much and they talk about the feel for the water. It sounds like what you're describing is somebody who wants to transition into a, a more efficient or a, maybe a better running stride. They have to practice a lot, maybe not for time, but just to get a feel for the ground with their feet, so to speak. Yeah, and I would I would compare it to learning any other skill. Uh, I am not great at snowboarding, and it's completely my own fault. I've gone maybe five times in the last 10 years, and I've never gone back-to-back. So it, it's a real commitment. It's almost something you want to do a little bit every day. Um and you need that sleep and you need that recovery for your body to integrate. You know, what did I learn today? Well, today I practiced stepping this way and go to sleep, get up the next day, spend a little bit more time. And maybe you try that again and you change it up a little bit more. And so it really is an experiment um, for people who are willing to go through that. I think there's a ton of information to gain. For me, I loved being competitive, but one of my issues is, is I also, I also want to, be 60, 70, 80 years old and still running because I don't believe in, you know, I believe running can be a lifetime sport. I just think you, you have to be open to continue to learn new things about your body in order to do that. I think they term that uh, maturity. You probably would not have thought the same when you were 18, 19 or 20. <laughs> no, or even 25, <laughs> even 25. Um, it's difficult. I am, I'm in a way I'm, glad I didn't get injured in college because then you really have two competing interests, your scholarship versus your body. Um, so I didn't get injured till I had been in the military for a while. And I was actually in physical therapy school at the time when I got my first injury, which is very ironic, but it's, uh, it, I didn't have as many competing interests, so I could really at least try, you know, to focus on healing 
But it took me years. It took me probably five years uh, for my first injury to going barefoot to really uh, figure out what a huge part of my problem was, you know, and I, th- I think we can still overload our bodies. You can have the perfect stride. You can, ha- you can strength train and you can do everything right. And sometimes you just do too much too soon. So, but that's more now the injuries that I deal with is you know, I spray my ankle in a Spartan race or something like that versus, um, just having, you know, like I say, every single day over striding and hurting myself. I know one of the things I tell people that I work with or friends of mine who say they want to run a marathon is I tell them to go to a marathon, watch the people at 20 miles and realize that's not, <laughs> that's not the way you're supposed to look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've always been, you know, it's so funny. I've always been a very conservative runner, so I, I take it slow in the beginning and, uh, in general. And, uh, so I, I like to think I look good at mile 20. But that is not the norm, and it definitely depends. I mean, if it's hot enough, you know, if it's a rough enough course, you're just not going to look good. So I want to touch a little bit as a physical therapist and as a coach. Clearly, there's a lot of research out there on running. Clearly, there's a lot of research out there on injuries. And clearly, even now, physical therapists, strength coach, endurance coaches don't know everything. But we know that yeah. the, we know that the majority of runners at some point in their career are going to become injured. I know you said in our first interview uh, two weeks ago that you know I was a college runner and I was never injured. And I was thinking, I wonder how long that lasted because the old joke is there are two types of runners: those that have been injured and those that haven't been injured yet. So I saw some Absolutely. I saw some uh, pictures on your website that you did a barefoot running clinic with the military. And I know that you do other running clinics. How do you convince somebody who's highly competitive or where you can look at them as a physical therapist? You're going to say, okay, that's an injury waiting to happen. They may be fine now, but something's going to happen. How can you convince them or is it a lost cause to, okay, maybe we need to change this and you may slow down or you may be slower for five or six months, but in the long run, you'll be faster because a lot of them will say, well, I got a race in three months and I'm signed up for a marathon in four months. Yeah. I wish somebody would tell me the answer to that. Um, I think, I think stories can be helpful because information is great. And there are those of us that really appreciate good information. You can present that, but I think providing stories brings more emotional context to it. It's almost like you got to make the person feel something because they're so focused on, on their goal. So usually I'll, I'll tell people my story so that they can understand. Um, not that I was like a national level runner, but good enough to go into certain competitions, good enough to, to do it in college. And it, but it, but it's hard. Uh, people, if they haven't felt a problem, it's not real to them. It's like, you're just making stuff up. You really are. <laughs> Unless they know somebody, you know, if they have a friend, or if they're halfway interested in your story, I, I do think uh, some people will take note of that and maybe try to implement, depending on what they're doing, implement at least some other strategies. Uh, but to slow down and completely rehab your gait, that's a hard one. Because I think the folks, I think Dathan Ritzenheim did that. And I need to get up with my running news. Um, but I think he slowed down for a couple of years just to 
to, I think, transition to like a more midfoot strike. Um, and he worked with <clears throat> a bunch of experts to do that. And I think eventually he got faster. But I'll tell people, you know, I'm slower than I used to be. Um, and part of it is when you're changing your gait, you're taking away that protection of the shoe. You can't just slam your foot down. And I think the, the all the muscle work, if you think about standing on a box and jumping off the box and landing softly, that's a lot more work on the muscle, but it's also protective of your joints. So I think building your body up to move a completely different way, I think ultimately you, you can get to where you were, but you've got to be patient. I mean, I know that doesn't quite answer the question of how to convince someone. <laughs> I was hoping you'd had this. You had the solution. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the other thing you can ask, and I think this is probably the best question, is just how long do you want to run? Uh, because if you're really, really good, and you're making a living, and you're making money, and and there's an end goal there, you know, maybe you beat yourself up for a few years. But if someone wants to run into middle age and and beyond, I really think that. That's probably the question that I would pose, you know, and some folks are better at it thinking ahead than others. I always think of my, I'm 32, I think of my 40, my 50, my 60 year old self and what would they appreciate? So, cause I, I don't, <laughs> because there's life after 50, you know, there's life after 60 for a lot of folks. So it's like, you know, don't doom, <laughs> don't doom your active lifestyle if you can help it. I know one of my clients is in his late 50s or early 60s, and his comment was, it really is true. It does take longer to recover when you're older. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, just for folks out there, like, I don't have the exact age. I want to say maybe 73 or so. But the oldest guy last year to finish Leadville was in his early 70s. And, I mean, just think about that. A lot of folks look at Leadville as a huge accomplishment, and this guy is still doing it in his early 70s. And you just have to think about who, who you want to be. I have a couple questions relating to running. I think the first one is you kind of alluded to it. You said, you know, it's not that somebody's going to have perfect biomechanics. It's that they, but their body is able to withstand the forces that their biomechanics put on them. And I'm paraphrasing you there. Do you think there are some people who just are not made to run long distances because of what their biomechanics are? and they just can't build their body up so that the soft tissues and the bone can adapt or withstand the forces that the biomechanics place on the body? Yeah, I, I have to believe that's a factor uh, is, is your own personal physiology. Uh, you're going to have some limitation. So, I mean, why do young people have osteoporosis? You know, there's some folks that are born with connective tissue disorders, and that's more of an extreme, but I think within your normal bell curve of, how much can a person do at once and not overload their body? I, I think at the ends of the bell curve, you have people who they can go from 20 miles to 60 miles in a week and their body absorbs that much better than other people. So I, I really do think there are folks that are more uh, going to be more responsive to the training, just like anything else, strength training. Um, you know, I think about hand-eye coordination. I probably would be better at that if I weren't scared of getting hit in the face. <laughs> with like a ball, um, uh, you know, so that's probably a fear thing, but absolutely. Uh, there's, uh, our physiology is, uh, is, is, it's really interesting. I think it's hard, hard to measure things and hard to know what's important to measure with that. And so as a therapist, I just go by symptomology 
and try to assure people that, you know, if you listen to your body, it may be a slower process, but you can get further than if you just try to keep up with everybody else. It's really important to go at your body's pace of adaptation. I think one of the things you really hit on a few minutes ago is the fact that you want to be able to continue to be active into your 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think that's valuable information to pass on to patients, clients, or if you're just an amateur movement aficionado listening, it's like, you know, you may not be able to run that really fast marathon, but if you can be doing the same thing 30, 40, 50 years from now, it's a pretty good movement life. Absolutely. And find folks that are older. Um, this is not a foolproof plan, but um, I have some friends that are early 50s and they're very high level athletes. And, you know, just talk to people and see, you know, what are the mistakes that they made? Um, what are they doing now? How are they still performing at a high level? So if that's something that interests you, if you want to perform at a high level now, talk to people who are who are 20 years older than you that are still performing at a high level because they're going to tell you exactly for the most part, they're going to give you some really, really good information. So that's, that's kind of my cheat. <laughs> Just ask. <laughs> Another question I wanted to touch on, and I think you're well-suited for this as a physical therapist, an endurance coach, and somebody who has run the progression of variety of endurance running activities is what's the time frame for somebody to start training for a marathon? I know, just recently in Pittsburgh here, they opened up entry for the Pittsburgh Marathon 2018, which is the first weekend in May. And I know it's a marathon that gets a lot of first-time finishers. And if you look at these statistics over even the past 10 years, the finishing time for marathons has gotten much, much longer. And I think part of it yeah. is probably related to the fact that the marathon has become kind of a destination or check it off your box. I've done that. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, the people who did marathon is like we're runners and you know, in the fall we do a marathon. So somebody comes to you, they're recreationally fit in that they're exercising two or three hours a week. Maybe they're jogging three miles at a time, a couple times a week. What's the time frame before you think that they can safely, maybe not as fast as they optimally would, but safely, finish a marathon? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think if someone's consistent in their program and that's key, uh, probably on average, you know, they could, they could finish, I think within six months of, of training. Um, but the point you brought up was interesting because I ran probably nine years before I ran a marathon. And when you look at the aerobic system, there's a certain amount of time that it takes to fully develop that aerobic system. And I think the aerobic system is really important in day-to-day -day recovery. So it might be a decade of running before you really maximize your endurance. And then if you have, I, I'm still a little old school with training, so I still think a aerobic base is good. But part of that is when you're doing that aerobic base, you're giving your, your ligaments and your tendons and your body, your soft tissue time to adapt as well. Um, so if they're willing to just finish and not worry about time, I'd say you could do that in six months. If you're trying to PR, I mean, you're looking at years of consistent training. If you truly want to PR, you know, you can, you can run faster the next time and say you PR'd, but or if you want to re reach your full potential, you're looking at many training cycles where you build the body up and then you let it recover. Um, to get that max. And if people, if people just want to do a marathon, you know, 
that's that's a great goal. Um, sometimes I joke that, that we're all crazy. Like I really don't understand. <laughs> I, uh, I I I haven't done a road marathon in a long time because uh, it because it can beat up the body. I do more. I just like to be on the trails. So if folks folks look at ultras and and there are elites and there are a lot of competitors in that scene, but a lot of folks out there in the ultra scene as well are just doing it for fun. Uh, but I, I feel like the ultra scene tends to be more consistent runners than your road marathoners, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense because I think one of the things with the road marathon, if you get to mile 20 and you decide you want to drop out, there's probably a car ride or a bus ride back to the start finish line. I suspect if you get to mile 20 of some of the ultras, it's a long walk or a long wait until you can back, get back to the start finish line. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think if people, uh, when I, when I first started running, I didn't actually love running, which is kind of odd, but I wanted to try something different and I was not good at basketball. So, um, my friend was like, you know, Hey, cross country is you run out in the woods and you run in fields. And I thought, well, that sounds really nice, but it took me a while, uh, to develop a love for running because if you're not consistent with it, it's probably never going to feel that good. And I think a lot of folks, push themselves to get to a certain goal. Uh, the hardest part is being consistent. And I, I really try to coach people through that. And so instead of going hard and fast and all out, take that longer road, that longer uh, game and approach and be okay with, you know, in one season, in one six month period of training, you're not going to maximize your potential. So don't act like you are by doing, three days a week speed work for three months and that kind of thing. You know, don't act like you're going to be your fastest in this one cycle. I regret that I didn't save it, but sometime within the last two months, and I'll butcher the quote, I saw a tweet that said something like, consistency of training will outpace the fanciest periodized training program any day of the week. And I think you're, you're hitting on that, the consistency of training and the fact that if you want to finish a marathon, that's a worthy goal. And it takes time. And, you know, two or three months may not be enough. It may take six months. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really like the six months because you can get deload within that. You're not just building up the whole time. You get some deload, which for those of us that are prone to injury might, might help a little bit with that tissue adaptation. So you might have an easy week here and there and your body can recover a bit more versus trying to just build up for three months straight and then do your marathon and your, you know, the other thing, and I feel like people know this, but execution is very poor is you need to show up for your race as healthy as possible. You know, you want to minimize being burned out and having those niggles or, or a real injury because you're just, you're smashing whatever performance you could have done. You're just, you're just destroying it right there. You've got to show up feeling good. And for the marathons and the longer ultra distances, I think some coaches would almost argue it's better to show up healthy and undertrained than show up optimally trained but having that niggling injury. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, the more miles you go, and the more those matter. I had a, I had a mild sprain during Leadville. It was around mile forty-seven, and for folks that don't know the course, it's out and back. So at fifty miles, you turn around and go exactly the way you came. And there's a mountain pass there and it's just really rocky. It was not a bad sprain, but I had to 
keep going, right, for 53 more miles. So there was a lot of limping and hiking um, later in the race. And sometimes things happen in a race, but if I had gone in that race and I had some knee pain or some other issue, I don't think I could have, I don't know that I could have handled all those things at once, if that makes sense. So especially in an ultra, you really, you really want to show up ready to go because something's probably going to happen. Um, you know, 50% of the time you might stub your toe. You could, you could fall. We actually had, uh, a beehive on the course and I didn't get stung, but there were, there were runners that got stung by bees. So it's kind of like, <laughs> you just want to be ready, uh, when you toe the line and, and, uh, and not have anything you're starting with. We've been talking with Dr. Sam Wood. She is a board-certified orthopedic physical therapist. She's an endurance coach and an accomplished endurance runner herself. I think if you're listening to the second part of this interview, the take-home messages from her are, first of all, uh, have a consistent training program. Second of all, realize that training for some sort of an endurance event takes time. And I think if I could add two things, have a good physical therapist and a coach that you can bounce ideas off of because it's really difficult to look at all the information that's out there and assimilate what's good information and bad information and have somebody who can provide an objective view can help you not only finish your event, but finish your event without it being a life-altering experience and with it being an endurance, excuse me, enjoyable experience. Sam, I'd like to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live, and I know you're getting on the road tomorrow to head up to British Columbia. Good luck in your endurance run, and I hope you have safe travels. Thanks, Ben. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of FitLab PGH, brought to you by Moving to Live. Check out the episode show notes for contact info for our latest guest, as well as other information that we talked about background intro and exit music is Marathon Man by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Our website has other subscription options too. When you're subscribed, you're notified when we release a new episode. Questions, comments, suggestions, email us at fitlabpgh at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at fitlabpgh. Please tell your friends about us. Make FitLab PGH a go-to place to learn more about movement in the Pittsburgh area. Until next time, keep on moving.